This is Sunday school at uh, the adult uh, Christian education at uh, Falls Presbyterian Church. So we're studying maturity. Uh, It's been a while since we've been together. So we're using this book, which is almost not available anymore, uh, but at least it got us on on a road uh, to studying maturity. This is a book, Maturity, Growing Up and Going On in the Christian Life by Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this book when he was 32 years old. Mature, right? And that was after 10 years of preaching in Unst, U-N-S-T, which is the northernmost island of the, of the Shetland Islands above Scotland, which are part of Scotland. So he'd spent 10 years on an island with almost no population, okay? Kind of like the book of Revelation, right? And then he wrote this book on maturity. So... I don't think so at that time. And then after that, he became, that'll mature you, won't it, being married. Um, After that, he became a professor, so that's his little history. But we're using that as kind of a a guide or perhaps as a provocation to help us understand and study uh, the matters of maturity. This week and next week, our concentration is... Uh, on maturity and assurance, okay? Uh, What is the relationship between maturity and assurance? Now, those are both kind of diffuse and cryptic topics, aren't they? Maturity, what is maturity? We've been trying to figure this out for a few weeks here now. And what is assurance? We talk a lot about assurance, don't we? Christian Church and Reformed Church, we talk a lot about assurance. And what is it, okay? Can we discern it? Maybe putting these two things together will help us to figure out a little better what assurance is and what assurance should be in our lives as well. I wanted to open with this verse, uh, Hebrews 10.22. I'm not sure that I have this in order on your handout, but hopefully it's there somewhere. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, assurance. Uh, These are aspects of maturity, aren't they? We would expect that if we're mature Christians, we would have some degree of assurance, wouldn't we? Is that true or is is that not true? Or is Christianity as a mature Christian simply pursuing assurance? I have a book at home. It's a huge book. It's about the pursuit of assurance by Calvin. It's a huge book, okay? Um, He spent a lot of time pursuing assurance, didn't he? So... Is maturity the same as assurance? Is assurance the same as maturity? Do we know that? But we're going to talk some about how we attain assurance and what assurance is. Um, So we're going to uh, review a little bit here what we've talked about before. We'll talk somewhat about our relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's relationship with us. And then we're going to get into a little bit of literary exploration about how relationships Uh, are um, depicted in literature and in uh, the Bible, okay? Most of our Bible study will be next time, Um, but that's basically what our outline for today is. So, this verse, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The verse success suggests that there is some relationship between maturity and assurance. 
where uh, when we have assurance, there's a relationship between assurance and uh, being having a clean, having a conscience that is clean from uh, evil, and also being washed in the work of Jesus Christ. So there's a completeness or maturity that's associated with assurance. You can get that idea, can't you? If you're assured about something, you've been along that road for a while. You understand some things. You're comfortable with some things. So there's a degree of maturity associated with assurance. So before, we've talked about the idea that this word that is used, we, it is uh, translated maturity in the New Testament, is actually a word for, actually a word for completeness, that we've gotten somewhere along the road. So when the New Testament uses that word, it's from a word called teleos, T-E-L-E-I-O-S. means maturity or completeness. It means that you've gotten somewhere. It means that you've grown to some extent in your relationship with Christ. We've also talked before about how um, a mature Christian, this is just a little bit of a review, is not rejecting of the world. He's actually confronting the world. And that's part of being mature as well, isn't it? When you're young, you're a little kid, you're a young person, even a young adult, you tend to run away from things, don't you? Things get tough, you run the other way. As you grow in your ability and your rest in Christ, you tend to confront, you know? You tend to go toward the world and confront the world for what it is not and what it should be. So maturity is also a matter of how we approach the world, we talked previously about Wordsworth's uh, poem, uh, The World is Too Much With Us. And we've said that title is kind of a fooler, okay? It's only like half what the title should be. The world is too much with us, he's saying, not because there's too much of the world here. He's saying it's too much with us for us to ignore it. God is saying this is his creation. We should be confronting that creation. We should be looking at it. We should be seeing God in it. We should be seeing the sin in it. We should be reacting to that. So Wordsworth's poem, The World is Too Much With Us, it's too much with us for us to ignore it, okay? It's not that we should be running the other way. And that's part of maturity as well. Um, Maturity is very much about relationships, okay? We've said this before. Um, if you're mature, you're mature in Christ, that means that your relationship with Christ has grown. It's a complex relationship. You understand a lot of things about Christ, and he understands an awful lot about you. So maturity, this, this idea of maturity, what is it? We're trying to explore that. Or will we ever get to a real understanding of that? Hopefully some understanding, but maturity is about relationships. Look at Romans uh, 6, 4 to 6 which says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Did I, did I forget to put that on your handout? Everybody's shuffling their papers. So. 
I'm sorry, but let me read through that with you again. Again, this is about relationship. Maturity is about relationships. The maturity of our relationship with Christ is, uh, is about the degree of our relationship with Christ. So Romans 6, 4 to 6, we were buried, therefore, with him. We were buried with him. Quite a relationship, right? By baptism into death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the relationship that we want. Okay, it's that complete relationship with Jesus Christ. For if we have been united with him in death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's all about relationship with Jesus Christ, isn't it? And it's very complex. It's very deep, okay? This isn't just like Jesus is my friend or so-and-so is my friend. I know so-and-so. I work with so-and-so. This is a very deep and complex relationship. How does that relationship develop? And how does that relationship relate to assurance, okay? Because when you have a friend, when you're related, when you have a close relationship with somebody, you have some kind of an assurance, a variety of assurances, okay, about that person. And we're going to explore that further today. So all relationships are, are, are characterized by some degree of maturity, okay? You have to have had moved along the road together to some extent to say that you have a relationship with somebody else. And, of course, it's very true of our relationship with Jesus Christ, um, we can actually define our level of maturity by the extent of our relationships, okay? How close are your relationships with somebody else? We know that when we observe somebody that has a close relationship with somebody else, you know that that has developed over a period of time. There's, a, there's been some work, okay, that's gone into that relationships. And so there is, a, there is a degree of maturity there. Whereas if you... Uh, know somebody that doesn't develop relationships very easily, doesn't develop any relationships, you start to wonder about what their concept of the world is, what their concept of Jesus Christ is. So um, maturity is a characteristic of relationships, okay, is a characteristic of relationships. They go hand in hand together. And what is a mature relationship? We're going to try to talk about that. Uh, later on. What is a mature relationship? Well, we know as Christians that that's defined by God, and we should be able to figure that out in the Bible, right? It should be there. We know that it is produced by God. God providentially gives us our relationships, particularly our relationships in the church. Um, we have um, all of this evidence that that this comes from God because why? God is the Lord of creation. God has determined all things, and therefore he's determined our relationships. He's determined how we relate together, and he also determines our assurance and our relationship with him. So we grow together with God. We grow together with each other as well. So relationships. I think we first, I just wanted to review a whole bunch of verses about 
the humanity of Jesus Christ. This is the person that we relate to primarily, isn't it? And so we need to examine that relationship in order to know something about assurance and about maturity. Um, So Jesus took on human nature. Taking on human nature, remember he was incarnate as a babe, and he had to mature, didn't he? He had matured in his human nature throughout his life. We have descriptions of that in the Bible. Uh, Jesus interacts with us as human beings. He was incarnate for that purpose, right? So that he could interact with us. He died for us. He took his sin upon us, okay? We are regenerated uh, because of him. He rose from, the, all, rose from the dead. We know all of these things. And his purpose in becoming human is to show the relationship between God and us. Remember, God is imminent and he's eminent. Maybe I should put that the other way. Eminent and imminent. He's not only exalted, but he's with us. Imminent is with us. Eminent is exalted. So both of those. Jesus was incarnate in order to develop a relationship with us. And his other purpose with us is to give us assurance about our relationship with him as well. So let's read through a bunch of these. Uh, there's a lot of verses here, but I want to emphasize our, uh, the humanity of Jesus Christ so that we could talk about our relationship with him later on. Hebrews 2, 9 through 18 but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the, found, should make the founder of their salvation perfect. Okay, perfect, remember? Perfect, mature, complete. Okay, He should be made perfect through suffering. Jesus Christ made perfect through suffering. Okay, for he, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Our association with Jesus Christ, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children and the children God has given me. Our relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And through death, uh, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay? Now that long passage, okay, it's about the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's about his relationship with us, okay? And it's also about assurance, isn't it? There's a lot of things there that Jesus does for us and with us that gives us assurance, notwithstanding the fact that he has simply declared himself our brother, our father, our God, okay? 
There's some assurance tied up in that as well. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Jesus, the great high priest. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay? We're looking at our relationship with Christ the man, as well as Christ the God. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He matured, didn't he? Jesus, as a man, matured. And because, I'm sorry, and being made perfect, that same word again, teleotheus, this time, a different tense, he was made perfect, complete, mature, okay? Uh, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Look at that verse 9 again. And being made perfect, okay? Jesus, incarnate, born, maturing throughout his lifetime, being made complete, mature, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's our relationship with him. Jesus matures, we mature, we gain assurance through him and through our relationship with him. Again, concentrate. Think about these, this idea of Jesus being incarnate and we having a relationship with him. Hebrews seven twenty three to 25, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently, Jesus does, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's relationship, isn't it? Relationship with a man, with Jesus the man. Uh, two natures, God and man together. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Okay, Through him, through that relationship with him. Psalm 103.14, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Okay, Jesus was incarnate. Jesus rose again. Jesus sits in his bodily form, his human form, his physical form, at the right hand of God. 
He is still that way, okay? And it's important for us to, in this lesson, because I want you to know about this relationship. We're going to study what that relationship is like and about how it works later on. Relationship between Jesus the man and we, okay? His subjects, his sons, his brothers, okay? Jesus, man, and God, and his relationship with us. So, assurance. Another way of describing our relationship with God. And this is a love relationship that becomes, this love aspect becomes um, important later on. We're going to add to what we studied about love before. Assurance is just another way of describing our love relationship with God. You know how your relationships are? You have assurance in your relationships, don't you? Whether it's mother, father, brother, sister, wife, husband, whatever. There's assurance associated with that. And of course, there's this maximal assurance associated with our relationship with God, with Jesus Christ. Um, Their their relationships, again, I want to remind you, uh, can be described with regard to the maturity of those relationships. How far have they developed? That may have to do with how how much you've talked together. may have to do with uh, your own personal maturity, your own understanding, okay? Your own point in life might have to do with the duration of the relationship as well. But assurance and maturity go hand in hand. So how do we describe assurance? We haven't gotten there yet, have we? We might describe assurance in one way as full immersion in God, okay? What is a life of assurance like, okay? Are you and I, we tend to do this, all right? We tend to be wondering about our assurance all the time, don't we? Do I have assurance? Do I have full assurance? Do I have enough assurance, okay? These are the things that we tend to worry about from time to time. But assurance, in one way, is really full immersion in God. We know that he is our life completely, that Jesus Christ is our life, that our life is fully immersed in him. Nothing else matters. Not even our questioning of our own assurance matters. You know, as people, as fallen human beings, we spend a lot of time examining ourselves, okay? What about my sin? Am I being faithful enough? Okay, do I have what I want and what I need? Do I have full assurance? Okay, we're examining this all the time. I'd submit to you that assurance, full assurance, results or is there when you're not asking yourself that question. You get to the point where you're saying, am I sure about Jesus Christ? And I'm sure, is he mine? Say, say the same thing about our relationships in this world, our married relationships. You have assurance in, that, in those relationships, Right? That means you stop asking the question, all right? The question isn't there anymore in many ways. Now, we examine that for ourselves in this world because we learn about Jesus Christ by examining our assurance, by, by our quest for full assurance, according to Calvin, okay? Our quest for full assurance. That's what happens in our life. We grow in that way. We mature in that way. But full assurance is going to be that time where you don't even ask the question anymore. Do I have full assurance? You're fully immersed in God. You don't even have to ask the question anymore. Yeah, we have doubt, okay? Our doubt as Christian does what? 
It actually makes us grow more in, in Christ, doesn't it? We have questions, we have doubts, we go to our Bible, we commune with God, we pray, okay? And our doubts actually help us to mature even more. Uh, it actually make a, makes us focus more upon, upon God. I thought this was well depicted in this, this poem by William Shatner, The Transformed Man. Pam gave this to me. Um, Pam also corrected me the last time. I said Trekkies, and they're Trekkers, not Trekkies. Okay, I was wrong about that. I'm not much of a Trekker if I don't know the right word, right? So, uh, But at any rate, the transformed man. And this is, I think it's a good depiction of what it is to have a high degree of assurance, okay? This is the last verse only. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says, then one day in the split of the, in, in, in the, split of the moment, the shutter within flashed opened, and a gush of light flooded my being. I became as a pure crystal submerged in a translucent sea, and I knew that I had been awakened. I had touched the face of God. Okay? So, in the split of the moment, the shutter within flashed open. Something, something imposed itself upon this person who's talking, okay? And he was enlightened. We said last time, kind of reminds you about Paul, doesn't it? Okay, you know, Paul, the conversion of Paul, the light, you know, suddenly something came upon him that made him less self-assured, didn't it? Paul was self-assured. He was persecuting Christians, persecuting the church. But there was this sudden light, okay, and he lost his vision for a bit, and then he saw the full light as he went through this, this time of conversion. A gush of light flooded my being. I became as a pure crystal submerged in a translucent sea. It's a good image, isn't it? What if you have a pure crystal of something submerged in a translucent sea, you know, not a complete, um, uh, completely clear sea, but a translucent, partly, partly clear sea. What happens with that crystal when you put it in that solution? You can't see it anymore, can you? It's a pure crystal. The light goes through it. If you were to take a pure crystal, take your diamonds and put them in a, in, a, in a translucent solution, you'll see. You can't see it anymore. This is the nature of our immersion in God, in Jesus Christ. We're fully immersed. We're fully assured, okay, because our life is completely in him. You can not even see yourself anymore as you examine yourself in that way. You're fully immersed in Jesus Christ. And I knew that I had been awakened. I knew that I had been awakened. That's assurance, isn't it? Part of our assurance is knowing that we are in Christ. Full immersion is assurance. We are fully within him. Now, for people who aren't Christians, full immersion is what? It's drowning, isn't it? Okay? They hate it. Okay? They run away. They don't want it. Okay? Full immersion in Christ for them is drowning. For us, it's life. For us, it's being fully in Jesus Christ. It's being fully assured. Okay? Um, so it's a, it's a depiction of our, our unity with Christ. You know, will we get to that point? We will. Jesus promises that we'll go. We'll get to that point where we are fully immersed in him. Uh, Paul was fully awakened, he was fully immersed in Christ as well. Last time we also talked about um, uh, Colossians 3.3. 3. We talked about George Herbert's poem, okay, 
I don't know, did I put that on your handout? I forgot. Uh, a wonderful poem. It describes the same thing, okay? Colossians 3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, okay? You have died and your life is hidden in Christ and God. The crystal in the translucent solution, right? The Bible tells us the same thing. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And George Herbert's poem, My Words and Thoughts, do both express this motion that life hath with the sun a double motion, two aspects of our life. The first is straight, and our diurnal friend, the sun goes up and down, okay? The other hid and doth obliquely bend, that's our life, that's our hidden life, isn't it? It's our spiritual life. We have this open life, our physical life, we have a spiritual life as well. One life is wrapped in flesh and tends to earth. The other winds towards him whose happy birth taught me to live here so that still one eye should aim and shoot at that which is on high, quitting with daily labor all my pleasure to gain at harvest an eternal treasure. And if you look at the words that are capitalized and go diagonally across that poem, um, those words are, my life is hid in him that is my treasure. Is uh, Herbert capitalized those. He wanted to see the physical presence of the poem itself. He wanted the physical aspect of the poem to be in a particular way. Okay, it's our life on earth, isn't it? And he shows you with capital letters, my life is hid in him that is my treasure. Okay, just like the crystal in the translucent fluid. We are fully immersed in Christ. And that's our developing relationship with him. That's also our assurance, isn't it? Fully immersed in Christ is our assurance. Our lives get distracted in all kinds of different ways, but we have full assurance when we're completely immersed in him, just as Colossians 3.3 tells us. Um, Let's see. I put, I think I put in your handout uh, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, as Kingfishers Catch Fire. This is a tough poem, okay? It's difficult. Uh, but let's read through it. It says, As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame, as tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring, like each tucked string tells, each hung bells. Bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Okay? He's talking about the physical aspects of the world. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins had his own approach to poetry. Well accepted. It was very regular. It was very structured. Okay? But it's, it's hard. It's not like regular language for us. But what he's describing here is he's describing physical nature. He's describing the physical aspects of our being. He goes on, each mortal thing does one thing in the same deals out that being indoors, each one dwells, okay? He's saying our physical being deals out, puts outward, okay? You and your physical being put outward what's inside. There's this relationship between your physical and your spiritual being. He says, self, selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying what I do is me, for that I came. You are, what he's saying here in summary as he puts it, what I do is me. You're crying forth. 
you sitting here, being here as you are, putting yourselves together as you have. You're crying, what I do is me. What you see is me. There's that full immersion, okay? For that I came. He goes on, I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. This last stanza is talking about, again, relationship between man and Jesus Christ. Um, I say more, the just man justices. Who's the just man? Just man is always Jesus Christ. He justices, that means he meets out justice, okay? He also is the fulfillment of justice because he died on the cross for us, okay? The just man, the just man justices. It's a nice phrase. The just man, Jesus Christ, is the one that, that underwent justice for us, Okay? The just man justice is, he keeps grace. As God, he keeps grace. That keeps all his goings graces. Everything that Jesus does is a grace, okay? That keeps all his goings graces. He keeps grace. That keeps all his goings graces. Acts in God's eye, what in God's, what in God's eye he is. Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places. That's a... It's kind of a hyperbolic statement, but it's really more hyperbolic than that, isn't it? It's bigger than what he's saying, okay? Christ plays in 10,000 places. Christ plays everywhere, okay? We're talking again about full immersion in Jesus Christ. Hopkins states it like that. For Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his through the Father, through the features of men's faces. He's talking about the dual nature of Christ there. So, again, this is a depiction of our relationship with Jesus Christ, of being fully immersed in Jesus Christ. That is our, um, our desired relationship with him. It is a relationship that we have if we can recognize it. It's also that thing that gives you full assurance that you are fully immersed in him. So, we have full immersion in Christ. He is the object of our faith. Um, We hope to reach that state where we're not wondering about our assurance anymore. Um, That's maturity, okay? That's love, this relationship with Christ, this love relationship with Christ. It's also maturity, knowing that we have assurance. So, Another thing I'd like to get to today is what, is what is relationships and what are intimate or love relationships like? How do they work among um, human beings? We talked about our God, human, Jesus Christ. And we like to examine what, how these relationships work. Uh, I'm going to talk about, first of all, how they work in really a practical sense among us, Okay. And then we're going to talk in a kind of biochemical sense how that works and how that's been shown today. I put the biochemical in for, um, for Roy, our PhD in chemistry. He'll understand it all, uh, but hopefully it'll help you understand what our relationship with Christ is like as well. Very interesting. It's very interesting. So how does love work among humans? We've studied before Augustine, 
Love is a kind of craving of something for its own sake. You're craving another person. You think of romantic love. You're craving that person. You're separated from them. You want to be with them. That's true of all of our love relationships. If you don't see love as a kind of craving, if you're not wanting to be with that person, is that really love? You can say, I love you, okay? I love you, okay? But if your desire is not to be with that person, to be intertwined with that person, whoever they are, is that really love? Augustine says no, okay? Augustine is, uh, love is a craving, according to Augustine. We need to keep that in mind. So there is a, uh, a pattern to the development of love relationships among people, okay? Um, this has been well observed for thousands of years. If we look back in literature, to the very beginning of literature, as it's given either orally, you know, to hear, or if it's get written down, um, it was discovered a long time ago what human relationships are like. I'm not giving you a prescription for your human relationships, okay? Um, I'm not giving you a prescription on how to develop human relationships or love relationships, but this is really how it works. And if we see it depicted in many different places, you'll see that this is true. Um, you know, and I want to put in your mind um, sort of that kind of classic, um, not classic, but the common way of depicting this in literature and on TV and whatnot. You know, you have the guy that goes into the bar and he strikes up a relationship, or not a relationship, but a conversation with the young lady, right? And um, that conversation goes back and forth, doesn't it? And it's during that conversation that a relationship develops. The guy says something, the young lady says something, and what is the nature of that, that conversation that goes back and forth? And it is this, okay, that actually forms relationships in human beings. It's verbal, okay? God is verbal with us. Our relationship with God develops in the same way. Um, so, you know the classic, the common depiction of this. The guy sits next to the girl, or they're on a blind date, right? Never met or don't know much about each other, and the guy starts talking, and he's talking, 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 talking telling about himself, you know, on his fishing trip and going to Peru and all these things and how cool they are. He's going on and on and on. And finally, the young lady gets up and says, see you later. And what, is she, what does he say? What was it? Was it my aftershave? Was it my breath? What was it? And what she says in return is, why don't you listen once in a while? This is a two-way thing. And in development of relationships, as we see them in literature, as you read things, you read stories, fiction, whatever, try to pick out this pattern. It's very much there. It's the uh, wooer, the person who wants to develop a relationship with the other person, coming in and saying certain things, and it's that person responding as well. Both of those are important. You know, so often we watch those shows and we say, well, it didn't work, you know, the relationship doesn't work, but we don't really see why. The reason it doesn't work and truly, this comes down to physiology. It comes down to biochemistry, okay? It doesn't work because you don't have both aspects of that dialogue. The same is true with our relationship with God. You'll see that, okay? Um, my wife sometimes accuses me of being Walter Mitty. You guys remember Walter Mitty? Most of the older people will. 
He's the guy who is just kind of in his own life. There was a movie, it was The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, right? And he's always into himself. He's not having this dialogue back and forth with other people in his life, with his wife, with his family, okay? Um, both aspects are important, okay? And you'll see why, all right? Um, let's see. So, some of this that I'm, I'm going to talk about now comes from a, a man named Angus Fletcher. He's a, a, neuro, um, a neuroscientist, a degree in neuroscience, also a, a PhD in literature. So this is why these, he brings these two things together, okay? I just wanted to point that out to her. His, his work is called Wonder Works. A little bit complex, got some science and stuff in it, but it's a very, very good work on how relationships work. A lot of other things, too. Um, language, of course, again, is the way God approaches his people. Language is, again, how we go to God. The back and forth is real important. This is a form of really romantic theology. How do relationships work? How do we become immersed in one another? So, how do these relationships work? The first part of the conversation, we'll call that person the wooer. That's W-O-O-E-R. It's a weird word, isn't it? The wooer. He's the wooer. The young man comes up, the young lady, and what does he do? He engages in self-disclosure. He tells the young lady something about himself that's special, okay? He doesn't come and say, well, I'm a man, okay? A lot of rock and rolls like that, isn't it? Well, I'm a man. Well, you can't tell. Um, no, he reveals something secret about himself to this other person, something we say intimate, but it's really a secret. He says, you know, I like snails. And she goes, ew. But it is something intimate that maybe nobody else knows about this person. If you think about your own relationships, what do we do? We reveal secrets to one another. Um, these are things that you wouldn't ordinarily confess to everybody, okay? Uh, they're things that are interesting about you. They reveal your nature. They reveal your um, orientation to the world, okay? Reveal your orientation to God, okay? These things are intimate. Uh, there are things that you may not have told anybody else in your life. And this is the way the wooer starts the conversation. These secrets are, as you, if you study this in literature, in our own relationships, they're very powerful sources of love. If you've told something, somebody something very intimate and secret about yourself, what are you doing? You're pulling that person into yourself, aren't you? You, in your own heart, are pulling that person closer. You're telling something secret and intimate about yourself. could be anything. But they're very powerful sources of love. It works when you do this, okay? Well proven throughout the ages, through thousands of years. Uh, that drawing closer increases with the degree of secrecy. So if you tell something that nobody else knows about you, okay, that really draws that person into yourself. In your own heart, it does. The wooer tells this very deep secret, very uh, strong source of love. So people become intimate with these secrets. You know, God reveals himself to us in this way, doesn't he? How does that happen? I mean, we know his word. We listen to sermons, means of grace, okay? But think about your own reading of the Bible, okay? 
when you're regenerated, when your mind is open, when that flash of light comes and you know that your life is immersed in God, then you start to see these intimate things that God has told us about himself, okay, in the Bible. There's a lot of them. You guys could probably name a million of them, okay? But God gives us that intimacy in his word. His revelation, okay, is that uh, bit of intimacy that he gives to us. And that has a particular effect on the person that's listening. Uh, This is not like general revelation, okay? Um, Romans 1, 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. That's general revelation, okay? That's stuff that God tells us everybody knows. But there's a lot that's in the Bible that's, that's intimate, a lot that God reveals about himself that's specifically for each one of us. Now, you say, well, we all know the same things in the Bible, don't we? Bible's there, it's all the same for everybody. No, it's not. You guys know that. We're all at different positions in our life. We all know different things about the Bible, different things about God. So we all really know God in a slightly different way, okay? Because we are different people. There are intimacies between God and us that he reveals through his word. So the wooer, God, reveals things that are very secret about himself, Uh, things that people who have not been regenerated really don't understand and don't draw into their own hearts the intimacies that God gives us in his word. So God engages in self-disclosure. The male-female relationship we were describing, the same thing. If there's no self-disclosure, there's no secrets there, okay, and the, the, more, the, the more secret it is, the more effective it is in a real love relationship. If there's no self-revelation there, then there's no relationship. Now, there's a second part that needs to be added to this. And again, this is all, these are things that you can see in your relationships, your own relationships, in literature, in relationships you see with other people. The second part of this is not just that you're revealing something about yourself. You also are revealing something that you add some wonder to. You know, you go to the young lady, you want to strike up a relationship there. If you just give standard, mundane kinds of things, she's going to be bored, right? She's going to look at you and she's going to go, yeah, not very interesting. But you have to add wonder to it. And that doesn't mean that you're an actor, okay? It doesn't mean that you trump all of this up and you make up all this stuff, but you have to add a little bit to it. That's part of the secrecy part of it. And that bit of wonder occurs in, in a literary sense in what is called stretch, okay? You take the standard story and you move it a little bit further, okay? Because after all, you're a unique individual, aren't you? You're a unique individual. And so you're trying to show this person, this person that you're trying to develop a relationship with, that you are unique and that you're sharing these secrecies with him or her, okay? So that bit of stretch. You have a secret and you have stretch. It's a little more than the standard story. Okay, it's not just I ride a motorcycle, it's I ride an Italian motorcycle. That's a little more stretch, isn't it? 
Or I built my own motorcycle. Okay, you've, made, you've taken the story a little bit more down the way. And that's kind of a gross description of what we're talking about. But you're adding things that increase the, um, the wonder about the story that you're telling. If you can't put any wonder in this, you guys know this. Okay, we've all been through this in our relationships. If you can't put any wonder into this, that other person that you're trying to woo, the woo-e, okay, at the woo-er, the woo-e, I don't know. But anyway, or the wooed, okay. If you don't put any kind of wonder in this, they're not going to be interested, okay. So you have to have, you have to have the intimacy, the secrecy, okay, the self-disclosure, plus you, you have to make it in a way that is interesting to them. God does this, all kinds of stuff in the Bible, right? Story of creation, you could start there. You go, wow, really? That's really wonderful, right? Go through all of the Bible, you know, all kinds of things. Remember the story of uh, Balaam's donkey and the angel? That stretches a story, doesn't it, right? It makes it, wow, that's kind of strange, right? Uh, but the angel's there. God gives us a bit of stretch. He gives us an intimacy, then he stretches that story a bit, okay? He gives it wonder, okay? The story of Balaam's donkey is, is a wonderful story. There's wonder there. Uh, the story of uh, J.L.'s killing of Sisera. You remember the lady put a, a tent peg through his temple, okay? Well, that's a stretch on a story, isn't it? That'll get your attention, okay? God gives us an intimacy about what's happening with Israel at the time of the judges, he stretches that story a little bit, and all of a sudden, we each have our connection that's a little bit more intimate than other people can have. So, what happens at that point, okay, um, in this relationship? There has to be a response. And we're going to study the biochemistry of this next time. But the wooer comes and tells his story. He, there's self-disclosure. He tells secrets, and the deeper secrets, the better for this relationship. And the person receiving this becomes interested. And biochemic, biochemic, biochemically, there, is, um, there are things that happen that show us that this is truly what happens as well. That person listening, what do they do then? They give an intimate story about themselves. Okay, They give intimate details about themselves. And as these two develop their conversation, it goes back and forth. An intimacy from the wooer, an intimacy from the wooed, and this goes back and forth, okay? It's a cycle. And as you share more and more of yourself that you don't share, you haven't shared with anybody else, this relationship grows. At the outset, you might say, oh, that guy's really cool, okay? But that's infatuation in the early stages. As this goes on, and this conversation goes back and forth, this revealing of intimacies back and forth, that relationship grows and grows and grows and grows, okay? And finally, you're in love, okay? That's what finally happens. You guys have seen all those movies. You know, finally, they fall in love, you know? First, they're infatuated. Finally, they can't, they can't live without each other, okay? And if you think about it, this is the way relationships work. This is the way God made it, okay? If you want to look for any kind of observations, in our lives and literature, this is it. And we'll show you the biochemistry the next time. Same thing happens with God. Intimacies, he stretches those stories, he draws you into it. You see the wonder of what's in the Bible, wonder of the incarnation, 
a human being with whom you're going to have a relationship who is God, okay? You see the wonder of it. And then we do the same. We're the wooed, aren't we? We're the bride of Christ, okay? What do we do with God? We reveal intimacies about ourselves. Now, God knows everything, but something happens when you're revealing yourself, when you've decided yourself to reveal these intimacies to God. So often we go to God in prayer, and we don't say everything that we should say. You know, oh, I can't say that to God. You know, oh, I can't say it that way. But when we get to a full relationship with God, what do we do? We don't lie to him anymore. We tell him our intimacies. He knows them, but prayer is what? It's giving that intimacy back to God, and that's the way you need to see this relationship. The intimacy from God, the secrets from God, we tell what we believe are innermost secrets. We tell God what we believe the wonder is about whatever is in our heart. Okay, We say that. We're going to tell God what's on our heart, and that means we're giving God what we feel is the wonder about what uh, we're telling him. Okay? So, um, that's, if you think about your relationship with God, that's truly the way it works. And when you look at it, talk about God revealing himself, talk about our prayer in return, and as you do that time and time again, what you finally end up with is a love relationship. You finally end up with an assured relationship, full assurance, full immersion in God, because he is constantly sharing intimacies with you, and you are constantly sharing intimacies with him. And that's how relationships develop. That's assurance. That's a mature relationship, okay? A relationship that, that develops. It's a mature relationship. And then finally, you end up with full immersion, full assurance. And I know that Roy's heart's going to be going pitter-patter for a whole week here now, thinking about the biochemistry coming up. But we'll talk about it next time. It's very interesting. It's easy to understand. But it also helps to convince you, to prove to you, that this is the way God made it. So we'll, we'll be talking about that next time and how this relates to more of the Bible and Westminster standards as well. So uh, I guess we better close in prayer. Lord, we...